Uh, so last week we began our, our Advent series, and it's something we've been doing for a bunch of years. We kind of, we call it advantageous, wanting to take advantage of this time of the year to kind of slow down enough and not so that we do, wouldn't miss Christmas, right? It's really easy sometimes to get distracted by all of the, the stuff going on in this time of the year, and, and, and Christmas can kind of come and go, and we forget to realize the true reason for the season, which is the celebration of Jesus Christ. And so um, Advent is something that we uh, have intentionally, uh, we put a little uh, pause on our day-to-day to consider weeks in advance the coming of the Christ child. And so like the church has been doing for centuries, right? And Advent is not a biblical term, but historically the church has always celebrated uh, that period of time leading up to um, the, the presentation of the promised one that the scriptures talk about. And uh, Pastor Frank mentioned last week that Advent means coming. And so Advent is a pause in our normal routine to be aware that there was a time that the children of Israel, the people of God, waited for Messiah to come. And so as we rapidly get to Christmas Day, we want to make sure that we don't blow right by it by not taking moments of pause to consider that wonderful day. So what we do is we kind of, we kind of come into Advent with one eye fixed on that moment where Christ came, became man, born of a virgin, the promised Messiah, coming We do that with one eye on that one and one eye on the second advent, the second coming of Christ, which is yet to be revealed. Oftentimes we begin each Sunday on Advent to, um, we come and we, we light a different candle each week um, leading up to Christmas Day when we light the center candle reminding us of the birth of Christ. And so we always have um, someone come up and, and light the candle. And I just was thinking in the midst of all of this bling bling up here and blinking lights and uh, there's a little bling bling happening I see on Connie's ring over there. And so I'm gonna ask if Connie and Dave would come up. These guys got engaged last week. We're so happy for them. And so, Dave, you done good, man. I took a look at that ring and well, well done. The scripture says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And you found a very, very great thing. That's right, that's right. So would you light our candle, anyone but the pink one or the white one, right? We're not there yet. So thanks. Just don't burn the house down. We're good to go. Awesome. Congratulations, guys. We're so happy for you. Normally what we do traditionally is we focus our subjects each week in Advent on the themes of hope, peace, love, and joy. We've been doing that for about a dozen years now. And um, we just thought this year kind of change it up a little bit. There's nothing biblical about, you know, focusing on hope, peace, Uh, love and joy. And so this year we kind of thought, let's look at Advent a little differently this year. Let's look at it through the lens of the way in which Isaiah described the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Casey sang that song so beautifully and read the text that we're going to be using today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or flip there or look above me and read it. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at Advent through the lens of Isaiah's presentation of the Messiah, the coming one. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, 
For to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love this. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the passion of God, the drive of God, the heart of God will ensure that this promise comes to fruition. These words coming from the prophet Isaiah point to the hope of Israel. The promised Messiah, the one that we're introduced to all the way back in the garden. When the promise was made after man fell in the garden, when man ate of the tree and sin entered in the world and it caused man to be separated from God, with that consequence came the promise that God was gonna send somebody that would come and crush the head of the serpent. And all throughout the, the scriptures, as we look from Genesis on down, we see the hope of Israel, the promised one who is going to come, this one who is going to save man from their sins, that was gonna reverse the curse, to take that which was lost in the garden and restore it back to the people of God. And so Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit of God, pens these words to a people who, who are desperately in need of change. It was a dark day for the people of God at that time. They were at a time, there was a, there was a political mess in the world around them. They were a social mess. They were a cultural mess. They were a spiritual mess. And it's to this audience that this promise comes that, that hope is on the way, that the solution is coming in the person of one that God will send. And Isaiah, 750 years prior to this event happening in Bethlehem, Luke prophesies, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. I love that. Not only is Christ given to us corporately, corporately the people of God, but he's given to you individually. He is your savior. He is your redeemer. He was given to you so that you might have life in the son. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. This one who is going to come would be known as Everlasting Father. Those who encounter this one would recognize that he is the Prince of peace. Isaiah gives us these names that describe this one who will soon come, the hope of Israel. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to many names that are attributed to God. Obviously, we recognize that Yahweh is, is the way in which God demonstrates himself. He is the, the, he is the I am. 
But oftentimes people would, would encounter God and they'd walk away with a new understanding of who God is and they'd recognize that he is Jehovah Jireh. That he is the Lord, their provider. They'd experienced God at a new level and they walked away and recognized he is Jehovah Jireh. He is Jehovah Shalom is another name we see for God in the Old Testament. He is the God of all peace. Not only does he grant peace, but he is the essence of what peace is. He is Jehovah Shalom. He is Jehovah Rophe, one of the many titles we hear of God in the Old Testament, the Lord, our healer. He is known by Hagar after the harsh treatment she received from Sarai after running from her, 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 her master and all the issues that she was dealing with. She is sitting there. She is depressed. She's delusioned. She is scared. And God shows up and comforts that woman. And she recognizes and says, he is El Roy, the God who is there. He is El Shaddai. I love that he is the breasted one. That as a mother would bring a child to her breast and nurture and love on and care, he is El Shaddai, our nurturing father and God. He is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. He is the one who by which we are identified by. He is Jehovah Nisi. He is Jehovah Tiskanu. This one who would become our righteousness, who would be our righteousness. There is a righteousness that each and every person is required to present before God so that they might be ex accepted by God. But because of sin in the garden, there is nothing in us that is capable of producing the kind of righteousness that is acceptable to God. No matter what efforts, no matter what works, no matter what we do, we don't have the tools to produce the kind of righteousness that God requires. And so God sent his son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And he became our righteousness, the same righteousness by which Christ is made righteous is applied to the life of the one who encounters God. And even as, even as it is spoken of as Abraham, that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. When we embrace Christ, that righteousness that is required is applied to our life. And when God sees you, he does not see your righteousness, which falls short, but he sees the righteousness of his son. Isaiah will say later on, we are clothed in his righteousness. He is Jehovah Tiskanu, my righteousness. What a joy and comfort it is to know that when I recognize that I fall short of God's perfect standard, I am not judged by my failed efforts. I am judged by the righteousness of his son. And it makes me look at him and say, he is Jehovah Tiskanu, the Lord, my righteousness. These are just some of the names that are attributed to God. And these are not just merely names. These are just not, these are just not titles that, that God makes for himself. But this is what happens when people encounter God, when people have a, have a moment where they come face to face with God, if you will, and they walk away going, wow, God is my peace. 
I was discouraged and scared, but I had an encounter with God, and I recognized he is my peace. He is my shalom. He is my healer. He is my provider. It's when man crosses into an arena where they encounter God, they walk away changed. And it's not that, it's not that God changes his name, it's just that our awareness of who he is is different. And likewise, in Isaiah, he presents the Messiah and he, he ascribes names to this Messiah and he says, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He shall be called Mighty God. He shall be called Everlasting Father. He shall be called the Prince of Peace. Last, last week, Pastor Frank did a bang-up job introducing this first characteristic that Isaiah presents, this, this idea of one being our wonderful counselor. I was asked to preach at one of our sister churches in Pennsylvania last week, and, and, uh, but I got an opportunity to listen to the message last week, and I was so encouraged and, and charged up and challenged in my faith. I'm so thankful for his teaching. He is our wonderful counselor. So this Sunday, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week, wonderful counselor, and I'm gonna focus on this title, Mighty God. Isaiah says they will look upon this Messiah and they will recognize he is mighty God. You know, for the, for the people of God to consider this aspect of God's character, I'm sure for them, wasn't much of a stretch. It wasn't hard for them to consider that this one would be known as mighty God. I mean, they had heard the stories that were, that were passed on down from generation to generation to generation. That's the way they taught back then, right? They would sit and they would share stories of, of what they experienced and what they saw and what they learned and the many ways in which God would move in their lives. They heard about the times that when the people of God were under the bondage of, of the Egyptians, God stepped in and introduced plagues into the lives of the Egyptians until the point where Pharaoh finally realized he needed to let God's people go. And God stepped in and they would, they would talk about these things and they'd hear these stories and they'd say, wow, he's a mighty God. And they would say, well, and you know what happened is then they, they started chasing after us and, and the Red Sea was before us and the Egyptians were behind us and the mountains were on the side of us and we didn't know what we were gonna do. But then God, he opened up the water and we got across on dry ground and as the enemy pursued us, God opened it up and wiped out our enemies and they're going, wow, he's a mighty God and they'd pass it on from generation to generation to generation. They'd hear the stories about when God would tell them to go and take Jericho and they'd march around that city day after day as God gave them instruction on the seventh day, they'd blow the horn like God would tell them to do. And those walls that kept the people, the people of God out came tumbling down Archaeologists have, had excavated that site and discovered that those walls that came down, interestingly, they didn't just kind of tumble in, but they tumbled outwardly, like it imploded on itself. And so those walls that kept the people out actually became a ramp for them to walk on in. And they would share the story about the way in which God would do these things generation after generation. And they go, whoa, he's a mighty God. 
We say, wow, and there's times where we didn't have any water and, 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 and Moses, would, would, they, they would strike the rock and God would, would provide water and they go, wow, mighty God. There were times where the army, the enemies, the armies and our enemies would be after us and God would bring confusion upon them and they would destroy themselves and we would be spared and we, we recognize that God's hand of protection and provision were upon us and they tell it generation after generation and each of them would grow up and they'd go, whoa, this is a mighty God in which we serve. The many ways in which God would protect and preserve time and time and time again that hear about God would heal those who were sick. God would raise the dead back to life again. God would restore people and protect them and preserve them time and time again. And this one who Isaiah prophesies about would come with the same power, the same authority the same care, the same concern, because God doesn't change. And he would come for his people. He would be, as Isaiah says, mighty God. And you see, here's the difference. While the people saw the power of God, while the people heard about the power of God, what was gonna be different is now they would be able to put a face to the power of God. Now this one who was the one to deliver them, the one to protect them, the one to provide for them, he would come and they would now be able to make, put a face to this one who has carried them all along. The essence of who God is will not change. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And so while God will not change, their understanding of who God is is about to change and change drastically. As Isaiah will say, this one, he is going to come. And he will be a wonderful counselor. He will be, you remember the mighty God that you heard about, well, he's coming. He is coming. And he will not be a distant deity that you can't identify with, but he's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Mighty God of mighty God. And he will be called mighty God. Not that he, not that he will become mighty God, because he's always been mighty God. But their understanding after encountering this one, after walking with this one, after receiving this one, they will look back and say, wow, mighty, mighty God. Mighty God would come in the form of a child, born of a virgin in a town called Bethlehem. And that's exactly what happens. Mighty God has a face that they can now look upon. The person of, of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, present in the person of Jesus Christ. Something they had not experienced 
before. Something that Isaiah talks about 750 years prior to this event happening. But it happens. And after that event, Paul, with the luxury of hindsight now, under the inspiration of the scripture, will also write about this mighty God in Colossians chapter one, speaking of this Jesus who was promised, who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who continues to live and make intercession for you and I. Paul will write about this Jesus in Colossians chapter one and say Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You wanna see what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. I love that. It was Jesus who spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light in the book of Genesis. It was Jesus who separated the, 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 the seas from the dry land. It was Jesus who spoke into existence all that which is. For by him all things were created. In him, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. Jesus is the center of all things. All things exist around him to give worship to him. And he is before all things. And in him... All things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent, higher and wiser and above all that which exists. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that God wants us to know about himself on this side of eternity is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you want to know what God was like, you want to see what, what God thinks about your situation, you want to see what God has to say about our culture, look at what Jesus had to say. Everything that we need to know about God on this side of eternity is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. Who's that? That's you and I. That's me and you who, who, are, who are recipients of this sinful nature because of what took place in the garden. As a result of that, we are born separated from God, but Jesus came and because he shed his blood and took the, our punishment upon himself, he reconciles us back to God. He restores us back in the relationship with the Father. How does he do that? He makes peace by the blood of his cross mighty God. Jesus Christ, he, he left heaven. He put on our skin. He walked our dusty roads. He, he healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He made the, the blind to see. He raised the dead back to life again. He set free those who were in bondage. And Isaiah, looking ahead to this coming one, declares he is mighty God. And now Paul looks at this one who had come 
and sees the fingerprints of the work of Christ all over creation and says, he is mighty God. And you know, history demonstrates as well that Jesus is exactly who Jesus said he is. Despite the fact that there have been attempt after attempt, effort after effort to try and discredit the, the teachings of Jesus, to try and nullify all that the scripture says, no matter how many govern, governments and, and politicians and people have tried to discredit the teaching of Christ, nobody has ever succeeded. Why? Because truth is truth. And so even history declares he is mighty God, and we can do that now. But there'll be a time where everybody will bow the knee. Every tongue shall con- every every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is mighty God. And so Isaiah, looking at the Messiah, says he is mighty God. Paul, looking back at the Messiah, it says he is mighty God. History reveals he indeed is mighty God. But the question that begs to be answered this morning is, who is he to you? For those who are watching online or on TV, is he your mighty God? Not, not what is he, because as we've already established, God cannot change. He, his, his, the fact that he is mighty is not up for negotiation. So not what is he, but what is he to you? Who is Christ? Is he your mighty God? Have you experienced him as your mighty God? That's the question that God wants to ask each and every one of us today. Do you see him as mighty God in your life? Or do the struggles of the day, the distractions of the day, the questions of the day, do things get in the way and eclipse the majesty of who he is in your life? Are you experiencing him as mighty God? Do you come at the end of your day and look back and say, well, he has been mighty in my life? That's the question that God asked Jeremiah. Jeremiah, God calls Jeremiah on the carpet and says, behold, in Jeremiah chapter 32, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything that's too hard for me? Could you imagine God stepping into your brokenness? Could you imagine God stepping into your shame? Could you imagine God stepping into your difficulties, into your moments where you don't know what to do or where to go or how you're gonna come through and God looks you in the eye? and says, Pat, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything that's too hard for me? He does not change. And so if God does not change and we don't see him as that, I'm thinking the problem is the way in which we see him. Maybe you're listening to this or watching online and you think, well, I don't see him as mighty in my life. I don't see the fingerprints of God on display in my life. I don't see why and how God is at work. Too many times you you fail to see God's might because you don't leave God enough room to come and change your plans. You only trust God to the degree that he does what you think he should do. 
And when God doesn't do what you think he should do, we feel that that's our open door to step in and help out a little bit and put in motion the things that we think God wants us to do. And the result of that is, on top of mistakes, been there and done that, right? The, the problem with that is that if I don't leave God room to, to interrupt my plans, I'll never experience him as mighty God. And it might, my interruption in my own planning might be the very thing that keeps me from experiencing God's best in my life. And so how do we consider and see God as mighty God? Five things I want to just bring to you this morning. I'll just kind of present them to you and let the Holy Spirit challenge your hearts today and throughout the week. How do we see, because I believe you want to see that. I think obviously you wouldn't be listening or here right now if you didn't want to see the, the mighty, I mean, it's a very dumb question. Who, anybody not want to see the mighty work of God in their life? We all want to see the mighty works of God in our life. And here's the other thing. God wants us to see his mighty works in our life. Do you believe that? God wants us to see his hand in our life. And so if that's not been our experience that we might need to consider, why is that? Five things that might help for you to see God's might in your life. Number one, embrace his plan for your life. Embrace his plan for your life. You see, that can only happen when you, when you really believe that he has a plan for your life. I mean, too often times, we, you know, while we don't say it out in public, we live our lives like God doesn't really have a plan. And so because God doesn't really have a, doesn't have a plan, I kind of need to create one. But the reality of it is you were created on purpose and for a purpose. God has a plan for your life. God has you where he has you. You were born where you are, around who you are, at the time in which you're living. You might not, that might not be the equation you want, but that's what you got. And that's the environment that God has chosen to place you in this life for such a time as this to experience his plan for your life. And when we experience God's plan for our life, God's plan brings wholeness. God's plan for our life brings significance. God's plan for our life brings to us those things that God has created for us to enjoy. And so when we relinquish our plans out of our hands, into God's hands, then and only then do, do we see the mighty hand of God at work in our life. Maybe if we're not seeing it, maybe we're holding on to something other than what God has for us. Embrace his plan for your life. Number two, embrace God's solution. Embrace God's solution. God knows the end from the beginning. Last I checked, he is the only one that is omniscient. It means that God knows everything there is to know about everything. You might have met somebody or might feel like you're somebody who knows everything there is to know about everything, but there is only one that is truly omniscient, that knows everything there is to know about everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He sees what cannot yet be seen. And God brings about a solution at times that might not make sense to us at the moment because we are bound by this thing called time and we don't know what's down the road, but he does. 
He is not bound by time, he is over time. And so God will introduce solutions into our lives that might not make sense at the moment, but it's in those moments that we need to remember that, you know what, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are, are transcendent over our thoughts. What doesn't appear to make sense at the moment will become clearer at the right time. And if we'll but trust, we'll look back at that moment and like Isaiah declares, we'll say, mighty, mighty God. Boy, did he show up. Embrace his plan for your life, embrace God's solution. Number three, embrace God's timing. Embrace God's timing. Rarely does anything happen according to my timeline. Have you discovered that? Things don't happen as quick as I want them to ever. Um, and when that happens, don't, don't take time into your own hands. Delay is not denial. God will always answer your request in one of three ways. He'll say yes, he'll say no, or he'll say wait. And I don't know about you, but I will take a, a firm yes or a firm no over a wait every single time, right? Because when I've got a wait, I just don't know what to do. I get very creative in the waiting process and just kind of throw up suggestions of what God should do. And, and there's been times where I've put my nose in where it doesn't belong and God would remind me. And, and so waiting stinks sometimes. But here's the thing we need to remember, that delay is not denial. It's not like God's like, listen, I'm on vacation and I'm not thinking about this right now it's not like I was like I'm just too busy to deal with this no there's a reason why there's a wait there's a wait because God is still introducing things into your life in my life that will ready us to receive the thing that God has for us at the right time the problem is if God gave us everything he wants to give us and at the wrong time it would destroy us but because he's a good good father because he loves us because he knows our frame the delay sometimes, and what the delay will bring out, right, is the very thing that God may be wanting to deal with us about because it's getting in the way. You can do the right thing at the wrong time, and it becomes the wrong thing. Embrace God's timing, and when you embrace God's timing, you'll see God's fingerprints in your life, and the result will be you'll look back and say, mighty God, instead of my, oh my, oh my, what did I do? Why in the world did I, why, why, do, I, why do I insert myself? Why can't I just shut up? Why can't I just surrender? Why, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? But if I want to see the fingerprints of God in my life, there's times I, I need to embrace God's timing. Number four, embrace God's methods. Embrace God's methods. Have you discovered that God does things differently in your life than you would expect him to? Sometimes we can get so caught up with, with setting the stage to ensure that our intended result becomes a reality. We've got the whole plan all figured out. We're just waiting for God to give his approval to it, his blessing on it. And sometimes that's not the very thing that God wants for us. 
You see, sometimes in order to see God's mighty hand on something, we have to take our less than mighty hand off of something, right? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Yeah, but God, I, you don't understand. I, I need you to do this. This is the way you need to do it. This is how you need to do it. This is the timing. And so I'm not gonna take my hand off of this. No, if you wanna see my mighty hand at work, take your hand off so I can put my hand on it. And you'll look back at that moment and you'll say, mighty, mighty God. Embrace his plan for your life, embrace God's solution, embrace God's timing, embrace God's methods. The psalmist says, says, it says in, in Proverbs, chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter three says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways, submit to him and he'll make your path straight. That's a, it's a lot easier to preach than it is to live. I gotta be really honest with you. but isn't that what God is doing in us? Isn't he, isn't he looking to get us from a place of, from faith to trust, from believing he can to taking our hands off and trusting that he will? Embrace his methods and then lastly, embrace his heart. Embrace his heart. Everything God does flows out of a heart of love. You know, love is not just what God does. It's the very essence of who he is. It's not a verb to God, right? It's not an action word to him. Love isn't what God does. It's the very essence of who he is. And therefore, because it's who he is, and it's, it, 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 everything he does flows out of a heart of love towards those in whom he loves. It's important that we embrace his heart. When we trust his heart, we can relinquish with control. But oftentimes we wonder if God really loves us the way he says he really loves us. When we trust his heart, we can relinquish control. The opposite is true as well. When we don't understand God's heart, when we don't trust his heart, we try and control things. And they're not for us to control. God is a mighty God. Isaiah talked about the one who would come and said, you will say about this one, he is mighty God. Paul, looking back at that one who came, looks and says, you will look at him and see, yeah, indeed, he is mighty God. The fingerprints of God are all over the history of the world that all declare he indeed is mighty God. But in the end of the day, he wants you and I to walk out in that reality. He wants that to be your testimony. He wants that to be your experience. He wants you to know that he is mighty God to you. For to you, a child is born. To you, a son is given to you. Your testimony about this one will be he is mighty, mighty God. And in order to get there, sometimes, sometimes you, sometimes you need to embrace God's plan for your life. Sometimes you need to embrace God's solution. 
Sometimes you need to embrace God's timing. Sometimes you need to embrace God's methods. And all of those become a whole lot easier when you'll embrace God's heart, a heart of love for you. He is for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus. Indeed, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world. And even as Isaiah declared, we declare today, he is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father. He is our prince of peace. In this season, God, would you allow us to slow down enough to see your mighty hand at work in our lives. Help us to embrace your plan. Help us to embrace your solution. Help us to embrace your timing and help us to embrace your methods. And most of all, help us to embrace your heart. We give you thanks for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.